Welcome to the Frontline Industry Podcast. Every week, we talk with top senior executives to get their advice on positively impacting frontline employees, companies, and customers. On today's episode, Culture Fuels Results Part 1, I talked to Greg Creed, former CEO of Yum Brands, a monster company with brands including KFC, Pizza Hut, Taco Bell, and the Habit Burger Grill. Greg covers topics like how Yum Brands uses a performance rating and culture rating to measure executive effectiveness, seeing culture through the lens of creating family, the most important person at Taco Bell, what Greg can't teach you to do, and how to go from living the culture to leading the culture at work. Don't go anywhere. The Frontline Industry Podcast starts right now. Welcome to the Frontline Industry Podcast. My name is Joel. I'm your host today, and I'm joined by the former CEO of Yum Brands. His name is Greg Creed, and if you are a human being, you have eaten food in one of the restaurants and the uh, organizations that he headed up uh, for many, many years. I'd like to welcome him to the show, and uh, I'm extremely thrilled to hear all about the wisdom and the insights he has gleaned from his years of leadership uh, in, in many well-known establish- establishments that we're all very familiar with. Greg, welcome to the Frontline Industry Podcast. Joel, thank you for having me on the podcast. I'm excited to be here and sort of sharing my whatever too many years of wisdom. <laughs> well, you have a lot, and uh, it's remarkable. I grew up in Minneapolis, and I think about the number of people who lived in Minneapolis and its surrounding suburbs. It basically mirrors the number of people in Yum Brands who really yep. were impacted by your leadership and the leadership of those around you. Did that ever weigh on you and feel just like a tremendous burden, not in a negative way, but just a responsibility? No, not really. I mean, yeah, at one stage we had... We- we had 1.5 million employees um, who came to work every day at Yum, and um, in 140 countries. So, but no, I think if you you first of all, it, did, it didn't weigh on me. I mean, you want to do the right thing for these people, right? Because if you think about just how many people are, are dependent on you know jobs and and not just even the 1.5 million, you've got all the supply chain and all the people that sort of provide all the goods and services and all that sort of stuff. So, but it never weighed on me. I, I, I'm always it was interesting. I um, I had a little sort of saying, which was, you know, I'm not here to make you happy. I'm here to do what's right. If I do what's right, I'll make you happy. And I think sometimes what leaders try to do is make people happy or, you know, whatever it is. And I think ultimately your job is to do the right thing. Um, In the fundamental belief that if you do the right thing, then you will make people happy because of the outcome. And so, you know, I look at it as a chance to influence 1.5 million people through culture, through opportunities, through all of that sort of stuff, rather than the burden of, you know, a million and a half people being dependent upon me. You bring up culture, and I think that's a really good thing to go with today as a starting point, because you're very passionate about culture. And culture means different things to different people. What's your definition of culture, and why are you so passionate about it? That's a good question. I mean, I think the first thing that the reason I'm passionate, let me answer the question about why I'm passionate about it. I think culture fuels results. And I think in business school, what happens is you get taught this very simple model of what I call strategy, structure, culture. So you define the strategy, you then work out the structure of the organization to bring the strategy to life. And then we're sort of like in your spare time, you know, worry about culture. And I, I think they're the right ingredients. I think they're just in the wrong order. I think culture comes first and strategy and structure. And I think the reason that's important is I don't know how you write a winning strategy if you aren't aware of what I call two parts to culture, the external culture, what's happening in society, but then also the internal culture in terms of what's happening in your organization. And so I think if you understand what's happening externally, you, have, you understand what's happening internally, 
I believe the strategy you write will be more successful. So that's sort of part A. And then part B to me was, um, you know, my predecessor, David Novak, who was also incredibly big into culture and recognition, all those sort of things. We demonstrated beyond a doubt that where we had the best culture, we delivered the best results. And so, you know, we actually at Yum, um, every year you you get a performance, you know, measure. So, you know, a, whether it's one to five or significantly above target or, you know, whatever. But you also get a culture score. And so I think we're one of the few organizations that give executives a culture rating and a performance rating. And what we did is we made it incredibly clear to everybody that if you wanted to get to the most senior levels of Yum, you needed not just to deliver results, but you needed to deliver with a great culture. And so that for me was, you know, I think unique. I'm, I'm, I know the lawyers didn't like it because the, uh, the KPI performance tends to be objective and the culture one tends to be subjective. But I think the organization rallied around it and fundamentally believed that culture fueled results. And I believe that culture has fueled the, the amazing results at Young and continues to do so. Back to that first question then, yeah. and that's really insightful, then how, how do you define culture? Because people are going to be wildly different on, on culture and what it means to them. And culture doesn't mean we have a ping pong table and we have, no. you know, we have a brewery inside of our HQ. Culture means something a lot more deep than that. Yeah, to me, it, what, it, what it really means is, do we have an alignment around a set of values and beliefs and norms and all of those things that matter, that we, well, that we can share and that matter to all of us? Um, and so it, it's not about... I mean, you, you could argue maybe a ping pong table is a manifestation of, it, of how you example culture, but um, I don't think that's what it is. And by the way, these values can't be values that just sit on the wall. Oh, you know, oh, yeah, look, here are our 10 values on the wall, and then we basically don't care about them. Um, in fact, I didn't really care what was on the wall. And the other thing is I think some organizations expect everyone when it comes to sort of the cultural values to be able to mimic them. Like, oh, I can tell you what our 10 cultural values are. I, I don't think that's how... Culture is meant to work. I, I see it as like a family. So when I ran Yum, it, having run Taco Bell, I was like, well, Yum is sort of like the parents. Like, we're the parents. And we had three children, KFC, Pizza Hut, and Taco Bell. And if you think about a family, if you asked a family, if you asked the children in a family to define the values of the family, they would use different words. But ultimately, they would, they would have the same meaning. And what I didn't want to do was to have the same, you know, here are the 10 values or five values and they're on every wall and every brand has them. That, 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 does, that does not drive great culture. Um, that's sort of, that's, you may believe it drives great culture, but it doesn't. What it was was, you know, are our, our, our behaviours consistent with what, you know, our values are? You know, um, when given the choice, do we do the right thing or do we do the wrong thing? And not expect everyone just to mimic our five or 10 values and, you know, as I jokingly said, every brand expressed them in their own different way. I mean, when I, when I ran Taco Bell, I think our values were under, I'm not even remember the word, but they're under the idea of hunger, right? So we had H-U-N-G-E-R. KFC and Taco and Pizza did something different. But if you, if you went to a young meeting and you've got all these different cultures and races and genders and sexuality, everything else, it didn't matter because there were these binding values that held us all together, even if the words that we used were different. And the way we expressed it really was through recognition and through this idea of, you know, we had a true recognition culture. And uh, every senior executive in the organization had a, you know, I, when I ran Taco Bell, I had a source packet. You know, it's like it was uh, probably about, I don't know, nine inches high, full of sand. 
and you know it, it had it had like the, a source packet on the front and on the back I could just write you know you know dear Joel fantastic job doing whatever so it wasn't the value of the gift it was essentially what it meant you know what's interesting I had people who took those recognition awards home and I've I've had wives and husbands write to me I had parents write to me of people that we gave them to and as much as they had zero financial value if you walked around the offices you saw everyone proudly displaying you know these recognition awards so I give David Novak a huge amount of credit he really transformed the culture um and it, it I think it really and as I said I believe it drives results and we demonstrated that those leaders that have the best uh, culture score and those leaders that have the best, you know, delivered the best performance. And um, I will go to my grave absolutely believing that culture fuels results. When you look at how culture fuels results, then I think most people would, would never talk to any person. Let's use Taco Bell as an example. Right. Perhaps above the level of manager of a location of Taco Bell. Right. Right. There, and yet there's bazillions of people who yep. are seen at HQs and, and all over the world, yeah. uh, you know, doing things that are important to Taco Bell. And yet that frontline worker, that frontline manager is Taco Bell to yeah. that, that, that customer and, 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 and really is Taco Bell in general. And sure. how do you push those values or how do you cultivate those values at that very base of the organization where there's transitory employees, where there's perhaps younger employees who uh, may not have the maturity or the background of, of, of really even thinking about those things in the way you do. How, how do you do that? Because it's, it's a tall order when you've got a million and a half people and most of them are those employees. Yeah, so the, th the key thing was we made the fact that the, we called it RGM number one, which was that the restaurant general manager was the number one person in the organization. So at Yum!, we don't have a head office. We have a restaurant support center. So even, you know, so you never came to visit the head office. You came to the restaurant support center. And the person that mattered most in the organization was not the CEO or C-suite or whatever. It was the RGM. And so a good example, when I, when again, when I was running Taco Bell, we, we had a three-day class called The Mark. And The Mark was where we brought restaurant general managers in for three whole days. So we flew them in from all over the country to Orange County. And we spent three days helping them or enabling them to become better leaders. We didn't teach them how to make a taco. We didn't teach them how to make a taco faster. What we taught them were what we believe were the skills that they could take, obviously, back to Taco Bell, but they could use them in their community. They could use them in their church. They could use them in, you know, where their kids play sport and all this sort of stuff. And I think it was interesting. There was two amazing things that came out of the mark. One was that the turnover from those that had done the course was dramatically less than those who had not done the course. So, so in the, in the world of, you know, the great resignation, I think that that played a lot, but it was also just, it was three days in a sense for a lot of people to come to the mothership because, you know, the belief, you know, if you're in Minnesota and, and the restaurant support centers in Orange County, you probably don't get to see the beating heart of the brand, right? Because, you turn up to your restaurant on the corner of, you know, Smith and Fifth and all that sort of stuff. So the other great thing was, and over time, we just bought, we, we used to bring them in at 50 at a time. We probably did four or five classes a year for three days each. And the other important thing was myself and the executive team turned up. This wasn't just, hey, well, you know, hi, it's not, you know, welcome, have a wonderful three days. We'll see you in three days' time, right? This was about um, 
making sure that we connected with the RGNs. Um, you're right. It is. I mean, did I? I've also visited a lot of restaurants, right? When you're in the restaurant industry, but you know, we with fifty thousand restaurants in 140 countries, I can't visit them all. But what we really tried to do was to impact and change the life of the restaurant general manager and give them the skills to be better leaders. And it's interesting, the restaurants that ran the best were those that almost felt like a family. And to some extent, you know, the restaurant general managers were in many cases like de facto parents. And, you know, I would visit a restaurant and whether it was a, a man, whoever was running the restaurant and they'd say, oh, yeah, look, I make sure the kids get their homework done. I, I almost bet their boyfriends and girlfriends. Um, and so that where we were most successful was where the restaurant general manager had created a, essentially a family environment. Um, and also our attention to answer your question was we, can't, we couldn't focus on a million and a half people, but we could focus on 50,000 people who ran the restaurants. And that was where we centered our energy and our focus and our attention was to making them feel like they were very incredibly special because, in fact, they were incredibly special because the old joke was, show me a great restaurant general manager and I'll show you a great restaurant. I, I think it's so impactful too because when you look at the way those teams run a lot, and I've never worked in, in that yeah. sort of environment, but I've worked in small kind of retail locations and yeah. things like that. It really is a family. You know each other, yeah. you know each other's stories, you're side by side all day long, you know the crap, you know the good, yep. you know when someone's having a bad day with their spouse, yep. you know when someone's kids are acting yep. up, you know the whole story. You are a family, right. and yet we don't always treat people like family in those environments. When yep. you look at the variability across yep. 50,000 RGMs then, and you yep. look at, was it a, pretty much a bell curve of, of distribution of performance? And how did you take that bell curve and, and narrow it? How did you take those people who are, who are re more resistant to that family mentality and, and bring sure. them in that journey together? Yeah, well, I think you're right. I think two things matter, right? You obviously want, yes, there's a bell curve because sort of the math keeps working. So the objective was how do you move everyone to the right, right? How do you, how do you move everyone to a better performance? I think part of it was obviously making sure that, interesting that we hired right. You know, it's sort of my, my old, you know, the, my old joke was like, you know, I can't teach you to smile, but I can teach you to make a taco. <laughs> and so I, I think often what happens is people hire for technical skills and not for values. And so for me, it was like, you know, no amount of money, if, if you're just not a happy person or you're just not going to smile or you're just mean and nasty, it doesn't matter what I pay you, that's who you're going to be. And so for me, what was really important was that we hired for, you know, the joke was, you know, we'd hire you for smiles. And, you know, I can teach anyone to make a taco, which is true. I try to keep things really simple, right? So the idea of, you know, I can't teach you to smile, but I can't teach you to make a taco, that, that says the sort of what we're looking for in the, in the people that we hire. Um, it also meant that the people above restaurant level also had to embrace that as well, right? Because, you know, when you're running restaurants, which are not easy, by the way, I always used to say it was harder to run a restaurant than a restaurant company. Um, it, it is hard work. And I don't think, unless you've ever worked in a restaurant, I don't think people really appreciate, you know, how hard it is. So anyway, I think in that sense, I think it started with the hiring, which is to make sure that we hired right rather than just hired for technical capability. Um, that was the critical one. The other interesting thing in this whole discussion was there's a lot of discussion now around the customer experience, right? And this whole idea of let's transform the customer experience. I, you know, I hear that everywhere I go. 
I, I think one of the things I want to share with everybody is this idea of the customer experience will never exceed the team member experience. Wow. And I think what often happens is people want to transform the customer experience and they completely ignore or they completely forget that you've got a team member, as you said, on the front line that has to execute that. And so one of my key focuses was to make sure that we enhance the team member experience. Um, if, you, if you take Taco Bell, if you work at Taco Bell, if you start out really just as a frontline service worker, you know, there's, there's a distinct possibility because we're also opening, you know, they're opening three or 400 restaurants a year that, you know, in four to five years, you can become a restaurant general manager. If not, we can actually pay you to get your degree. And so, I, you know, I don't think a lot of people realize that. We also realize that working in fast food or working in restaurants is probably, for most people, not going to be their long-term career. But that doesn't mean we can't teach them all the skills and the life skills. And I think some of the interpersonal skills that maybe aren't taught in families these days that enables them to be more successful, you know, employees and to grow and to, you know, get promoted and to earn lots of money. And, you know, I think there was, I don't know, I think there is still in society, unfortunately, a stigma about someone who who works in a restaurant or runs a restaurant, unless it's a five-star restaurant. Mm -hmm. The way I look at it is, you know, if you've got someone running a restaurant, you know, a typical fast food restaurant, probably a, you know, $1.8, $2 million restaurant, you've probably got 40 team members and if you think about it, you know, you've got a lot of young people, you know, responsible for $2 million in the, and the development of 40 people. That's a real responsibility. And I, I just don't think society, unfortunately, looks, you know, the old everyone, you know, did you flip hamburgers? And they sort of say it flippantly. And I, I think that's unfortunate that society looks on people because um, I met some of the most amazing people who do the most amazing things, who've developed the most amazing people, and in their communities are the pillars of their community. And I just unfortunately think people who work in restaurants probably deserve a lot more respect than society gives them. They totally do. I worked not in, in the fast food world. Yeah. But I worked in a restaurant for a couple of years. Yep. And, and I said, like I said earlier, I worked in retail a lot. There's yep. some very capable people, incredibly oh. capable people. You go, you go in the parking lot and it's like my kid's an honor roll student here. And this guy's done his own yep. lift kit on his truck. And, and you yeah. hear the stories and like, you're smarter than I am. That's for sure. And you're more capable than I am in a lot of ways that are unique to you. How do you take those people then? And, and maybe it's the people you hire, like you said earlier, they already have these skills or how do you develop the leadership skills that allow them then to truly connect as a family would to their 40 employees at their store? Because that, in my opinion, is one of the most missed opportunities in the frontline industries is leadership development and yeah. creating opportunities for those leaders to actually succeed. Cause they come in, they're like, I know how to flip a burger. I know how to make a taco. And magically right. that makes me a leader. It doesn't make you a leader. H- how do you do that, Greg? Well, you know, the other funny thing, well, I'll answer that. But the other funny thing was we had, we had often had people who were great restaurant general managers, you know, so they'd get promoted to be an area coach, you know, which was then, you know, running six restaurants. But if they weren't taught the skills, you know, the old idea of, you know, what got you here won't get you there. And I saw a lot of people who were great restaurant general managers who, when given the opportunity to become area managers or area coaches, um, you know, didn't perform as well because either we didn't give them the, the skills you know, necessary to be successful. Or for some people, you know, they just wanted to run their great restaurant. And I, I think, it's, you know, there's always this sort of fundamental belief of we all have to be growing. You all have to have a bigger job and a better title. 
I don't think that's what life's all about. You know, if you're running a restaurant and you are really incredibly happy running that restaurant, you are well remunerated and you can definitely remunerate people well for running great restaurants and you're developing the next generation of leaders, then I was always happy for you to stay a restaurant general manager. We'll just make sure we keep paying you more and more and more. So this idea of I've got to become an area coach or I've got to become a district, whatever the heck it is, I think is a, just a fallacy. And, you know, maybe in hindsight, you know, you get to my age, you sort of look back and you go, hey, life's short. You know, if you find something that you love and you're great at it and you get rewarded for it and you develop people, then, hey, just do it. Be happy and, and keep doing it. Now, as I said, part of what we did was we did these like three-day management development courses for the restaurant general managers so that when when they got into that role, we, we gave them skills beyond, you know, how to make a taco, how to make a burrito. We also learned that we then needed to do it for area coaches. So we, we learned after a while that, you know, we were promoting people and some of them were being incredibly successful and some of them weren't. And so we had to, again, teach skills, you know, what got you here won't get you there. And I think one of the great travesties of what's probably happened in the last two years because of COVID is I think as I talk to people, and not just in the restaurant industry, a lot of management training and development has stopped. It got cut. And it got cut because obviously margins were terrible. But for whatever reason, it got cut. And uh, it's going to be interesting to see who adds that back to their budgets when life goes back to whatever the new normal is. Because I, I also think that people stay with organizations. If, yes, they need, you need to be well remunerated, you need to have a great culture, but you need to believe that you're also learning and growing and developing as an individual. And if you're just gonna pay me well and give me a fancy title, but you're not going to actually develop me, then I, why would I stay? And so I think that what is critical is this whole management, leadership, development, training. I actually believe if an organization is great at that, then it will dramatically reduce turnover. I, I used to run a, a class called Jump the Gap. It was sort of when uh, people were going from middle management to senior management. We used to take 10 people away to tell you, right? It was like a full week. And I was there for the whole week. We had psychology. We had everything. You know, everybody came in. It costs like over $200,000 for a week for 10 people. And I think I ran that class about probably about seven times, I'm guessing. The turnover at the end was like 2%. So, for, so first of all, they got a week away. So they bonded with the other nine people and they built this, this own, even, and these people were cross-functional. They all worked at Taco Bell, but they were very cross-functional. So they bonded and became this sort of little unit that people could lean into and rely on and all that sort of stuff. But the mere fact that we took you, I mean, if someone offers you, you know, at that level, $10,000 more, are you going to leave or are you going to believe that, hey, I just got whatever spent on me as part of a fundamental belief that culture fuels results. And so these things all matter. And I just hope that the things that got cut in order to, you know, preserve organizations and make them survive don't get, well, you know, oh, well, we've got to add it back. Well, you know, if we add it back, what's going to happen? I, I'm, I'm fearful that that's going to happen. If you're right, and I believe you are, that culture fuels results, it's going to be very evident which companies did not do that well because uh, the results are going to suffer, I would, I would imagine. Yeah, exactly. I think it's um, because the other great thing is we used to, I used to teach a class called Leading Culture Fuels Results because the, of the four culture ratings that you got, you know, there was learning if you were new, there was lacking, that's not good. 
There was living the culture and then there was leading the culture. And so most people were living the culture. Um, obviously, the top school was leading. So the obvious question people would ask is, well, how do I go from living to leading? And the answer is, well, we'll teach you, right? And so I taught, I think, 19 times in 11 countries around the world over two years, a full one-day class called Leading Culture Fuels Results. You can teach people this. I can't teach you to be, I can't improve your IQ. I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist, whatever, but I'm told your IQ is your IQ, and you can read as many books as you want, and that's sort of what your IQ is. But I can teach you the skills to be a better leader. And so, you know, my fundamental belief was what the CEO does and what the CEO spends their time on says to the organization what's important. So, you know, Yum knew that over a two-year period, I visited 11 countries, taught 19 times a full-day class, which doesn't mean it's, you know, if you're flying to Poland, it's not like one day, right? So the organization knew that culture-fueled results, I, not, I didn't just believe in, I didn't just talk about it, but I actually, you know, sort of became the leader as teacher. And as I said, what the CEO does is more important than what the CEO says. Believe it or not, this is just part one of Greg's content from this amazing interview. And let me tell you, you do not want to miss part two. If you're listening on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, whatever, please click follow and any notification bells to get reminders when that next episode comes out to hear the rest of Greg's incredible story and wisdom. Subscribe, and Greg and I will see you for part two.